Hey, welcome to another episode of Objection Your Fiction. It's really powerful with that. With that one. Uh, joined by Cooper Knowlton as always. And today we are pleased to have with us uh, Andres Munoz. He is the chair of the litigation department at Romano Law, helps businesses navigate complex business disputes. Uh, especially those involving infringement and enforcement of company brands, which will be relevant to the piece of pop culture, the movie that we've selected for this week. But first, Andres, uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I have known Andres a long time. Um, we have litigated together in the past, not against each other, but in the past. Um, so I'm excited to hear what he has to say today. Um, the movie that we selected was actually selected by Andres. Uh, and it's one that I wouldn't have thought of. So I'm happy you brought it up because it's a movie I haven't seen in probably like 15 years. I actually didn't have to rewatch it for this episode, but I did in full. And it was a really great rewatch. Uh, the movie is Coming to America. It is, uh, I'm sure most people listening to this have seen it before, um, starring Eddie Murphy, Arsenio Hall. Actually, like a a ton of like really interesting like cameo appearances by up and coming Samuel actors. Jackson cameo is awesome. The Samuel Jackson cameo. I think Cuba Gooden Jr. is getting his haircut at one point during the movie. That's um, right. There's Louis Anderson. There's, there's, there's just like a bevy of really talented actors who have like really small roles in the movie, which is kind of fun to see something I definitely didn't notice when I watched it in like 1995. But um, we are going to talk about, uh, trademark IP issues in coming to America, specifically the McDonald's McDowell's comparison. We'll get into that in a minute, but first, before we do that, uh, Cooper, it's time for to put you on the clock and two minutes on the clock, two minutes on the clock. And we are going to have you summarize the plot of coming to America in two minutes starting hold on let me get my right, before phone before we get before we get into it i i wanted to say i i've never seen this movie i've like i can't believe i've never seen it and like the best part about recording this podcast is now i've seen i had never seen my cousin Vinny, and i got to watch that <laughs> as i had an excuse to watch that and now i had an excuse to watch this which i i watched this last night and i had so much fun watching it it is such a great movie and it and it like stands the test of time. Like it is, it is so funny and there are so many great parts and great scenes. And Eddie Murphy is just like such a genius. Um, it's a, it's really a classic. It's, it's so it, good. They, you know, they say things like they don't make movies like this anymore. They really do not make movies like this anymore. Like this, this type of movie that's just like easy to watch, pleasing, funny, good acting, really tight for like a fairly long movie. It felt like there wasn't a lot of wasted action in the movie. You, there aren't movies like this anymore. Yeah. There aren't, there aren't people like Eddie Murphy like this anymore either. I feel like that's the, he's that's still, the he's still alive, Cooper. So I wouldn't <laughs> test him to the side yet, but I think he's, all right. Uh, all right. Ready? Two minutes. And go. I feel like I, I, I wrote up quickly some notes, but I actually feel like I'm not even going to look at them because I feel like that's cheating. And I feel this like is cutting into defeats, your time. defeats the whole purpose. So Eddie Murphy, uh, movie stars Eddie Murphy, who is the prince of uh, Zamunda, which is a fictional African country. Um, he lives this pampered, over-the-top existence where everything is given to him. Um, 
the first 15 minutes of the movie is just kind of all him living this like insane life where he's just pampered and he walks down a hall and people are throwing rose petals in front of him and um, he has everything everything someone could want in life. Uh, and then the, the movie kind of turns when his parents present him with an arranged uh, bride-to-be and he decides that uh, that he needs a that the the, the wife to be is just there to please him and will do whatever he wants. And he says like, "What's your favorite food?" And her, she says, "My favorite food is whatever your favorite food is. What's your favorite music? Whatever whatever your favorite music is." So he he you're says, half, "We're halfway done, and we're not out of Samundi yet. We're not in America." <laughs> All right. So he decides that he needs an independent minded, uh, real person to marry. So he basically convinces his father that he needs to go on a trip or he'll come back in 40 days or something and then marry her. But his real plan is to go to America and to find his queen, um, which is why he ends up in Queens, New York. They look at a map and he points to they say, where should we go in New York? And they say, Queens, obviously, because that's where the queens live. Um, which is a great scene. They end up in kind of a rough and I, I believe it's Long Island City is where they where they ended up, which looks quite different today than it did back then. But they end up in a section in Queens um, that is, you know, 20 seconds, Cooper. 20 seconds. All right. Uh, they end up in a in a kind of rundown section of Queens. They they sort of are disguised as students. Um, and Akeem begins his search for a bride. He ends up being invited to a neighborhood fundraiser where he sees Lisa McDowell, whose father is uh, the owner of McDowell's, which is okay. Which you're is done. We're up to the part of the movie that's relevant anyway, so that's, it's fine. That's as far as I wanted to go. So he ends watch, up he ends up watch, seeing watch this the woman. Rest of the movie he ends up seeing own. this woman. He ends up saying, "That's my queen to be." She turns out that her father owns McDowell's. He gets a job at McDowell's. McDowell's is a knockoff McDonald's. And now two minutes and 20 seconds later, take it away. It's like three minutes now after all. It took you like another 40 seconds to even get from where you were. To if, you, if you edited McDonald's. out all the all the interruptions that I got from you, it was literally exactly two well, minutes. That's, that's part of the challenge. You have to navigate <laughs> around the interruptions. Otherwise, it's easy. All right. All right. So um, I... This is kind of all we needed to get to anyway. Uh, I think what we wanted to talk about were um, potentially uh, the trademark infringement issues implicated by McDowell's. And I guess, why don't we start by just talking about like what McDowell's is. You talked about it a little bit, Cooper, but Andres, you haven't spoken yet. Um, so uh, Eddie Murphy shows up for work the first day uh, and the owner of McDowell's introduces him to the site. Actually, Connor, I think we have a clip. Why don't we, why don't we play the clip and that can cue up the conversation. Look, me and the McDonald's people, we got this little misunderstanding. Hmm? See, they're McDonald's. I'm McDowell's. Huh? They got the golden arches. Mine is the golden arcs. <laughs> now see, they got the Big Mac, I got the Big Mick. We both got two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, and onions. But they use a sesame seed bun. My buns have no seeds. <laughs> so, all right. So, I mean, that is, in essence, what we're given about what McDowell's does. We'll talk a little bit about what it looks like and 
how people dress, how the employees dress. Um, but based off of that, Andres, big picture, if, if that was a fact pattern given to you by uh, the CEO of McDonald's who came into your office and said, we want to sue McDowell's, what would your response be? I mean, so that's like the running gag in the movie, right? Like it's clearly like a, like, like you said, like a knockoff. Um, and I would say at first glance it is, right? Like you, you look at the location, it looks like a McDonald's. They're wearing uniforms similar to McDonald's employees, at least in the eighties. Um, and it's clearly a ripoff. So I would say, yeah, I mean, they're cl clearly infringing your, your trademarks. Um, let's, let's do something here. So, so what, what, are, what is it, what is it that you would do in that situation? So step one, uh, is to send a cease and desist, right? Um, you know, you, you get counsel, you get your in-house guys to, to send a, a letter to McDowell's, uh, demanding that they cease, you know, using infringing content, uh, or else, right? Um, most trademark disputes are resolved that way. Um, especially when you have like federal protection, which I'm sure McDonald's, you know, obviously does. Um, and so that's really step one. You know, you basically put, put the, the infringing party on notice, uh, and then hopefully you come to some sort of resolution and you don't have to go to court. Do you think that, um, a random person showing up, taking photographs of the location constitutes sufficient notice? Well, so it sounds like probably in that movie, like the, the cease and desist has already been set, right? Because he says, we got this thing going on. Um, and it sounds like he's probably just ignoring them or, or raising like these, you know, BS arguments like you got the golden arches, I got the golden arcs. Um, and they're probably gearing up for a lawsuit, right? Um, we could talk about it a little bit later, but, you know, if you do have to go to court, you know, most of the time, step one is to file for a TRO or a temporary restraining order. And so I would guess that those pictures are probably going to make their way onto an exhibit in that kind of motion. And what would that, uh, I, I want to get back to the BS reasons in a second, because I think it's kind of fun to just go through them and talk about whether there's any viability to any of the arguments. But um, for, for those listening who don't know what a TRO is, what does that mean? And what would actually happen to this um, business if a judge granted a TRO? Uh, so th there's a lot there, I guess, I guess step one, right? Like the, the, the leading claim that McDonald's would make obviously is trademark infringement. Um, in order to prove, you know, claim for trademark infringement, the plaintiff has to show that they have a valid and protectable trademark. And then number two, that there's a likelihood of confusion. Um, it's that second element that there is a ton of litigation around, um, you know, federal trademark claims are, um, product of the Lanham Act, right? And so you would go to federal court and each circuit has like their own particular analysis to determine like whether or not there is likelihood of confusion. Uh, obviously McDowell's is in Queens, which is the second circuit. And so the leading case there that most, you know, courts will look to is the Polaroid versus Polarad case. Uh, and there's eight pretty, factors. pretty similar to McDonald's versus McDowell's actually. Right. Um, and so th there's eight factors that, that a court would, would consider. And we could probably talk about these, you know, for hours. I, I won't. Um, but you know, the first, the first factor is like, you know, the strength of the plaintiff's mark, um, you know, whether or not, um, they're operating in the same market, um, are people actually being confused? And so, you know, that's, 
what you have to prove in, 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 in your trademark infringement claim. Um, getting back to the temporary restraining order, um, you know, the theory there is that your brand, the plaintiff's brand is being damaged so much by this infringer that monetary damages can't compensate you, right? And that's a key element of, of a preliminary injunction, right? In other words, it's irreparable harm. Like if the court doesn't stop this immediately, my brand is just going to suffer. I can't wait two years to, to get this litigation over with and, and just get monetary damages at the end. And so oftentimes in a cease and desist, a plaintiff will preview like the, the, the possibility of a temporary restraining order. Um, and so what does that look like? You, you file a complaint in court alongside your complaint. You have your motion for a temporary restraining order um, or you argue to the court you know, I'm likely to succeed here on my claims, right? This accused infringer um, is using this, my mark, or is, you know, there's uh, an element of confusion. And so I'm like, likely to succeed and you need to restrain this company or this person from using their brand. Um, temporary restraining orders are, are really powerful, right? You basically get a preliminary finding from the outset and um, a federal court order enjoining you from doing business or operating under your brand can be really devastating. So it's a really powerful tool. How, how likely I mean, you, say, you say it's a, it's a very powerful tool. Like uh, I imagine federal courts are fairly reluctant to grant these orders, right? If you grant a TRO shutting preventing McDowell's in the situation from operating, obviously that's devastating to their business. Um, how likely, like, what does your gut tell you that in, in this situation, if McDonald's does go and file a TRO, um, what are, what's the likelihood of, of them prevailing? I mean, this seems like this is a pretty blatant example of trademark infringement, but I also think it, it sounds to me like TROs are probably, uh, it's probably a pretty high bar to prevail, um, to have a federal court shut down your business. So just like, what is your, what does your gut tell you, um, would happen in this situation if McDonald's were to file? I would say in my experience, if McDonald's, you know, goes to the Southern District or the Eastern District and, and applies for a temporary restraining order here, like given given these facts, they're probably going to get it. Um, and again, you know, we can we can talk about these eight factors, but, you know, you know, we're talking about a business McDonald's in the same market as McDonald's. Right. They're both, you know, uh, in, in, in the business of, of fast food, um, just looking at their logos. Right. Uh, I think that a judge is going to have no problem granting a TRO here. Um, you know, to your point, Cooper, just in case, you know, um, there's a concept of a bond being issued with a temporary restraining order. In other words, you know, if down the road uh, facts come out through discovery and it, you know, and they basically kind of suggest that there maybe shouldn't have been a preliminary injunction in the first place or the defendant wins. Uh, the plaintiff, you know, uh, would have posted a bond that would go towards the defendant to kind of compensate for 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 having their operations interrupted. Gotcha. So, just from a practical standpoint, I guess McDowell's choices would be to totally rebrand itself very quickly, or or shut down until they figured out how to rebrand themselves. If, if there was a TRO in place, right? Basically, um, you know, sometimes defendants um, will just consent to, to the TRO or to some sort of, you know, preliminary injunction instead of briefing it and arguing it. Um, 
it really depends what the papers say, right? So, so they can make a business decision to kind of like take a timeout and, um, and yeah, you know, rebrand real quick or, or just, you know, um, shut down temporarily. I have a question. So in a matter like this, McDonald's, obviously one of the two or three most recognizable brands in the world, right? A global brand. Is there an argument to be made that it's so obvious that this is a cheap knockoff because it's because people know McDonald's so well and they, they know that it's called McDonald's. It's very difficult to, for there to be confusion about that fact. Um, is there an argument that there's no way to confuse it just because of how well known the brand is? So like, you know, if if some if I came out with Mackey Mouse tomorrow and he, and he looks substantially similar to Mickey Mouse, no one's going to confuse Mackey Mouse with Mickey Mouse, right? I think that's one of the arguments that I would put forth. Yeah, I mean, so the, you know, those are the arguments that a defendant's going to make, right? And so if we are talking about those Polaroid factors, um, you know, the first one is the the strength of the mark, and that goes to your point, Lee, right? Like everyone knows McDonald's worldwide; it's a famous mark. Um, which actually could subject McDowell's to more liability. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, but then the second factor is the degree of similarity between the two marks, right? So there I can imagine in the brief, like, you know, some defense lawyer trying to make this argument, like, well, that's McDonald's, this is McDowell's. Um, and, you know, for, for that reason, they're sufficiently not similar. Um, the next factor would be proximity of the products. So in other words, like in what markets are, are both marks being used? Like is one person in, in, in the car industry and the other one's in, you know, food service? Here they're both in food service, right? So that's going to be a problem. But one's uh, in the sesame seed, seed bun service and one's in the non <laughs> seed bun service. So isn't that a major differentiating point? I mean, that would certainly be evidence of, 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 you know, of the copying. Um, but when you're talking about like sesame seeds, like actual food, like you, you can't, you can't actually get trademark protection over something that is um, like useful um, or functional, which I would argue that sesame seeds probably are. Um, it might be relevant under like a, like a trade dress infringement uh, claim. Um, but if I could just step back to keep talking about some of those factors. I actually um, wanted to talk about sesame seeds for a while. <laughs> we can get, we can come back to it since it's a factor sound more important, but let's just put it, a pin in it because I do How want would things to be different it. if it was poppy seeds. Yeah. Let's, poppy let's do the analysis of poppy seeds versus sesame seeds. Right. Yeah. We'll, we'll come back to it. Andres. go, go back to the real legal conversation. <laughs> Cooper and I will. <laughs> Um, so an, another factor is evidence of actual confusion, right? Like, so, you know, are people mistaking the two in social media, for example, are, are people calling, uh, McDonald's asking, you know, did, did they actually open up, uh, a location in Queens right next to Queen center mall, which is where the place was. Um, and then something else that the courts will look at is the defendant's good faith in, in adopting the mark. Right. So. I actually think that this is a debatable question, right? Like, did Cleo McDowell intend to copy McDonald's or did he just want to open up a fast food location with his last name, right? Like, that's something that he has going for him. It's, it's not that he just picked the name McDowell's. It's his actual last name. Yeah, I wonder. Arguably, if could... there's like a argument against like bad faith there. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, like, I feel like you could, I mean, we can, we can dig into the analysis of like this, this particular, this particular fact pattern, but I do think the only thing, like if, if you just take out the branding looking like the, the logo looking identical, the fact that he is a fast food restaurant named after himself, like McDowell's fast food restaurant that serves burgers. And I mean, I guess the big Mick is, is also probably pretty, probably pretty problematic, but I don't know, a fast food restaurant that serves like a double cheeseburger, essentially named after him, like not necessarily that bad faith, but when you throw in the logo looking identical and the the branding looking identical, I mean, that's, I think what, what really tips the scales in the direction of bad faith and, and probably an infringement, right? Oh, it's totally right. Um, you know, it's not trademark infringement just to sell a burger like someone else, but you're right. Like when you start talking about like the special sauce and sounds like they're marketing it also like McDonald's, which is a problem. So, um, you know, yeah, I think I, think- I, 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 I want to say it's not a ripoff, but you know, it's hard. Well, it, it raises a good point. So let's say Mr. McDowell gets a cease and desist, comes into your office and wants you to defend him. What's the strategy? What are the arguments that you're putting together? Or are you telling him, hey, man, just change the way it looks and you can still call him McDowell's. You can still sell burgers. People already know it's called McDowell's. They might, you might not even need the branding. It's not like you have a chain restaurant. You have one store are you advising like change the way it looks and keep operating or is there some other viable defense or strategy here you know in this kind of case number one you, you want to set expectations here um you know it sounds like he's the type of client that like is just not willing to acknowledge any sort of liability right because he's mcdonald's and not mcdonald's um so that's step number one, right? And then number two is just to talk about practical next steps. Um, you know, um, I do think that you don't have to necessarily change the name, um, although that might be difficult, right? I'm sure McDonald's is very litigious, but certainly changing the packaging, changing your employees' uniforms and, and changing the names of the items would, would certainly help. Um, you know, if he's got this cease and desist, and no, no court action has been filed yet. You know, another step is just to engage McDonald's counsel and just try to have some sort of dialogue and, and gain some time, right? Because time is going to be on your side. Um, and then just hopefully try to resolve something, um, you know, where, like I said, you know, we are changing the, 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 the names of the products and uniforms and things like that. Yeah, my follow-up question was going to be, let's say the litigation commenced and... Mr. McDowell got some good counsel and he decided, you know what, I can survive just being called McDowell, selling my burgers, but I can take off, take away all the other stuff, change the colors, maybe make it a red triangles instead of golden arcs. And I mean, and I'm going to change the uniforms. How would a court view that if it happens after litigation? So he wants to keep the name, right? But he's willing to change everything else. Would that be a, a, a viable position to bring before the court once the suit's already been filed? You mean like if McDonald's brought that evidence up that, oh, we filed suit and now he's changing his name? Yeah, I mean, McDonald's brings the lawsuit and then, he, and then he is proactive and he changes everything but the name. So he, he, he renames the Big Mick, he changes the Golden Arcs, he changes the colors, he changes the attire. Um, 
how would that play out, do you think, in terms of keeping the name if he makes good faith efforts after the suit starts to change everything else? Sure. So arguably, right, if you've changed it sufficiently enough, right, that there is no likelihood of confusion. Um, and I'll, I'll assume that he does, right? Um, yeah, keeping the, the, the name. So two things happen. Number one is you've probably eliminated the, the basis for a restraining order or preliminary injunction, right? Because now you can argue there's no ongoing harm to the extent that there's been damages. We're just talking about money. So let's let the litigation play out. Um, and then on top of that, um, I, I don't, it's been a while since I've, I've looked at this issue, but I don't think that McDonald's could like use that against you. In other words, that, that now you've changed. Um, and so really the litigation just boils down to past damages. How, how important is it that McDonald's has, uh, filed and, and owns valid, validly registered trademarks in this situation. And, and that's a situation that like a lot of, you know, I, I don't litigate trademarks, but I work with a lot of small businesses and people are always trying to register trademarks and seeing that there's, oh, something, something similar out there. Um, so like how, how important to, to all of this analysis in this case, um, is it that McDonald's were, were assumed, let, let's just assume like McDonald's never, never registered their trademark. So they never went through and registered their trademark. How does this analysis, how would this analysis potentially change in that situation? Um, that's a really good question. Um, and I kind of deal with this on, on a pretty frequent basis. So you don't, you don't need federal registration to get trademark rights, right? Um, trademark rights is actually rooted in the common law. And it's derived out of your your use and commerce of your of your mark, right? Um, the downside of not registering it federally with the United States Patent and Trademark Office is that your protection is limited geographically, right? So, in a situation where a company has a mark and they're operating in Queens or you know some other, let's say Boston or something like that, your rights are limited to like that area. Um, and I tell clients this all the time, like if you can afford the federal registration, you should get it because uh, the first thing that happens is you put everyone in the 50 states on notice that you're using this mark in commerce, right? So uh, you get pretty broad protection. Number two, if there is an action with, you know, or a dispute with uh, uh, an accused infringer, uh, federal registration gets, in, gets you into the door in federal court, Right. Um, and you know, someone who, who, who's litigated in, in state court a lot, you'd much rather be in federal court as a plaintiff judges are, are more willing to grant TROs. Um, and then finally federal registration, like I said, gets you a federal claim, which gets you federal statutory damages. So if you can show that the trademark infringement was willful or in bad faith, uh, which arguably it was in this case, you can get triple damages, triple damages. Um, and the other thing that's really important, and this is um, a huge piece of leverage in trademark claims, and this is something that I would advise Cleo McDowell if he was in my office, is not only can McDonald's assert the claim against the entity that's infringing, but if they can show that directors and officers or owners were involved directly in the infringing activity, they can assert individual claims. Um, and this often surprises a lot of my clients, right? It's not like you can just 
you know, get rid of the entity because you have no personal liability. A lot of times you can be on the hook. If, for example, there is, there's documents like emails where an owner will sign off on some sort of marketing proposal that is arguably trademark uh, infringement. Gotcha. What, so, so would you, what would you do if, uh, if Cleo walked into your office and said like, Hey, I'm thinking about starting this business and I see McDonald's doesn't have a trademark. Do you think it's worth like trying to beat them to the punch? And, and, if, and if I file a trademark first, then, then all of a sudden, will I have protection over them and, and can, then I sue McDonald's. I feel like I've, I've had a version of that conversation as well. Yeah. Th- this happens all the time, right? Someone will see, you know, um, a business with, you know, with a good product and they'll rip off the name. Um, and so nothing's preventing you from going to the, to the USPTO and, and, and trying to register that trademark. But a couple of things happen. Number one, the examiner is going to do a search of potentially, you know, similar marks or names. Um, if there is another company that's using the same mark, that could come up and it could be a basis for rejecting your trademark application. If the examiner doesn't pick up on anything and you do get the registration, actually, let me step back for a second. It looks like you're going to get the registration um, because the examiner says, okay, I've looked at your application. Everything looks good. It's going to be published, right? And this is something that happens um, in any trademark registration. The proposed mark is published for the world to see, essentially. And then anyone examining that register um, has the op- the op- the sorry the option to oppose the mark, right? So essentially, they can start a litigation in the USPTO office to oppose registration of that mark. So that's probably what would happen. Um, you know, Cleo McDowell registers say say registers McDonald or tries to register McDonald's. Um, McDonald's would actually oppose that application, and then you're in li- you're in litigation in this. Uh, USPTO proceeding, which is a little bit awkward and weird. So I have, I have just one more question. Um, you know, I know that com- I didn't actually see Coming to America 2, although I now want to watch it after rewatching this. I don't know if you saw it. When, when did it come out? 2022. I think it came out directly on like Netflix or one of those oh, streaming really? apps. Yeah. I have um, not seen it and I won't. I feel like it's going to be so terrible. I think all of the same actors are in it. Um, I think, they, I think everybody's back, <clears throat> but apparently it's like a part of it's about the launching of McDowell's in Africa. Uh, and cause I did like a little Googling on this. So I, the question that came to mind is let's say McDonald's sat in their hands for 30 years, which is how long it's been since coming to America. It came out 30, more than 30 years, 35 years. Um, and then they realize, Oh, he's opening another one in Zamunda. We're getting a little nervous now because McDowell's starting to grow. Um, but we didn't, you know, it wasn't worth our time to go after this one s- small store. They weren't really taking away any of our business in Queens, but they're going global. We don't really want to see that happen. Do they have an issue now going after um, McDonald's if they've known about this company for 35 years and haven't done anything? They do, because that's that's one of the main defenses in, in a trademark infringement suit. It's basically... Um, that you waived your, you know, your, your, your trademark rights. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but as a trademark holder, you have um, basically an obligation to enforce your trademark, to, to, to police it, to make sure people are not copying it, to make sure people aren't using it. 
And if you don't do that and you have knowledge of that, then any accused infringer can raise this argument about waiver or estoppel, essentially, or, or even like, like an implicit license, right? And that's something that in that hypothetical McDowell's could do like, okay, even if it's confusingly similar, you've essentially given me an implied license to use it, at least in Queens. You can't wait for the other business to get really successful so that it has pockets, so then you can go after the pockets, basically. Yeah, that actually really hurts. Um, um, that fact scenario really hurts brand owners sometimes. Uh, I was just reading a case about Nike. Um, somebody was ripping off their sneakers and they sent like a half-hearted cease and desist. And then 15 years later, that company started getting bigger and they went back and sued them. And that was one of the defenses that, that the accused infringer raised. Latches. Yeah. The other, the other, the other thing with that fact pattern too is like, uh, you know, we're talking about trademark law is is federal, and and there's nothing really stopping you, right? From from, I mean, I, if I have if I have a trademark for McDonald's in the United States, you unless McDonald's has filed for a trademark protection, like international trademark protection. Um, if I want to open up a McDonald's in Germany, McDonald's would have to use, go to the, you know, the German courts to, to stop that. Right. Um, That's right. Yeah. They, they wouldn't be able, whatever federal registration they have here in the States, they wouldn't be able to assert, you know, um, right. abroad. Right. So my, my last question is kind of just more of like stepping, stepping outside of the, of the movie. Um, I'm just, I'm curious, and this is maybe more of a copyright than a trademark issue, but is there any um, potential, like, could McDonald's, the, in real life, could McDonald's look at coming to America and have any issue with the use of McDonald's in this film? And is there any potential, like, what do you, do we, do you think Paramount or whoever owned, uh, whoever owns this, this movie had to go to McDonald's and ask them for permission to use McDonald's in the film in this capacity or, um, is there any, is there, do you think there's any, like if, if the movie makers came to you and were like, can we use this? Is this fair use? Is this, do we have any, like, is it because it's parody? Because I, I don't know, I'm just throwing out random ideas, but I'm, I'm wondering if uh, um, the filmmakers have any kind of intellectual property rights issues that they need to think about by using McDonald's in such a blatant way in this film. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's a really good point. Um, I, I would say if they were safe, they probably did reach out to McDonald's and, and sort of like kind of get their approval. Uh, but if they didn't, um, they have really good defenses. Um, and, and you, you mentioned some of the key, key terms, right? Um, so even, even if there is a likelihood of confusion between the marks, um, you know, uh, the defense here would be that it's some sort of parody or, or fair use, uh, which would excuse the, the infringement. Um, and I, and I, you know, I think that would definitely apply in this case, right? We're talking about a comedy. You know, it's not like some sort of drama. Like th this was the gag in, in, in the show or in the movie. So I, I, I took a look at this before. Actually, because of the name similarity, the producers did obtain permission from McDonald's. And um, this is pretty funny, actually. During the production, they, they erected this fake McDowell's and there was a McDonald's pretty close by. And he... McDonald's owner didn't realize it was a fake, <laughs> a fake restaurant, and um, he or she, whoever the owner was, threatened a lawsuit against McDowell's, um, not knowing that it was a fictional, <laughs> fictional restaurant. <laughs> that's that's funny. That, that's a good example of 
actual customer confusion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and one other, you know, little funny anecdote that actually came up more recently. I think this happened in like 2020. There was, um, I think during Halloween, a company did a McDowell's pop-up, uh, like a pop-up restaurant for like a few days um, in, in homage to the movie. And Paramount actually sued the company that opened the pop-up for um, publicly performing, creating, reproducing, displaying the work of coming to America. So uh, fiction becomes truth and everything gets muddled together. <laughs> They're poking fun at the idea of infringement and then ultimately they uh, they sue on that basis. So that was a funny little anecdote. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, and it's funny because you're no longer talking about trademark rights. You're talking about not copyright. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Well, so we'll all go watch Coming to America 2 and we'll come back in a few weeks and talk about that next. Um, and we can get, we can dive deeper into the seed conversation. Uh, Cooper, real fast, let's go around the horn. Scale of 1 to 10, what do you, what, what do you think of the movie as a whole? Not Not factoring in the legal issues because the legal issues really weren't uh i actually think exactly. there would be a there would be a fun a fun spin-off like a like a breaking bad goes to better call saul i feel like just the the clio legal legal uh legal drama that ensues would be would be a good a good sequel instead of whatever they made but um yeah i thought i, I loved it i was like so happy to I, I thought it was just like so fun and so enjoyable and especially like I don't know, such a good like anecdote to everything happening in the world right now. It just felt like such a like happy two hours to, to, to sit down and watch it last night. So um, yeah, like nine, nine and a half. I, 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 for, for what it is, like just for a fun, for a fun, like 1980s comedy, like I can't imagine anything much better. Um, yeah. Loved it. Andres, what's your, um, what's your review on a rewatch? I don't I mean, I'll always watch this movie. It's a 10 for me. Like I, you know, I, I, I picked this movie because I'm from Queens, you know, like as a little kid, I was like, Oh my God, they're actually making a movie about like my neighborhood. This is great. Uh, it's also like peak Eddie Murphy. I feel like after this, it was like just a decline of like awful family movies. Um, but you know, this is like classic. He's got multiple characters in it. Um, it's great. Yeah. The, the, um, the, the arguments in the uh, barbershop are really, really good. It's really funny stuff. Um, yeah, look, I think this is this is somewhere in like the... I'm a pretty tough critic. This is somewhere in like the eight, eight and a half range for me. Just a really, really good comedy. Um, so, well, Andres, uh, this was super informative. Um, really great deep dive into some legal issues emanating from the movie. If um, people listening to this... Uh, made it past Cooper's movie introduction. They're still listening. Where can they find out? Where can they hear more of your legal thoughts? Where can they find you, et cetera, et cetera? Um, so, you know, my firm is Romano Law. We're a boutique firm, you know, based in downtown Manhattan. Uh, two years ago, I came down to South Florida and, and building out the practice down here in Miami, Fort Lauderdale. Um, we do a lot of blog posts on the website, um, which I often, you know, relink on LinkedIn. That's that's pretty much my main outlets. Okay, good. All right, well, Andres, we appreciate it. This was great, and uh, we'll have to pick a different movie and have you back on again soon. Awesome. Thank you for having me. This is great. For more on all things real estate and the law, subscribe to this and our other podcasts. Follow Bergstein, Flynn, Knowlton, and Polina on social media. 
subscribe to our newsletter, and go to bfklawoffice.com. That's bfklawoffice.com to learn more.